0: wherever you are anyway god bless you and i hope you enjoy the podcast thank you worship team good morning grantham church great to see you all in worship on this sunny sunny summer day here you are some people are on vacation but you're here you're here and i know we probably got folks join us through live stream it's that time of year it is so good to be together and to worship the lord together we're continuing in our 12-week summer series called Saints and Sinners. In this series, we're looking at various biblical characters whose lives were messy and broken, and through their stories, we're seeing how God lovingly meets us where we are and works with us despite our past, despite our lack of faith, despite our sin and our doubt, our age and limitations. He's simply looking for people who will give him their heart and trust him with their life. Amen? And in this grace, with our willingness, of course, to yield to his spirit, the Lord works us into his grand story of redemption. I hope you've been able to trek along with us through saints and sinners so far in this series. We've reflected on the lives and stories of Abraham, of Jacob, Moses, Rahab, Esther, and Elijah. And all of these folks, every single one of them are saints and sinners. They weren't perfect. You think about it. Abraham offered up his wife twice to save his own skin jacob was a deceiver and 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 moses was a murderer and rahab was a prostitute and esther lied and elijah didn't actually if you caught this last week tell ahab what god told him to say when he was called a name he gets upset and then there's a showdown on mount carmel and then elijah murders a bunch of people and it's kind of like how moses struck the rock you remember Moses out of anger strikes the rock, he can't go into the promised land. And soon after, Elijah turns his mantle over to Elisha. So if you're having a hard time seeing it, I don't want you to see it this morning, all of these people are broken. All of these people are sinners. But folks, that's all God has to work with. And aren't you glad that he does? This morning we are gonna give attention to King David, a prominent figure in the Old Testament in the biblical story in a sermon entitled, Seeking the Heart of God. Would you turn with me in your Bible to the book of Second Samuel, chapter 11. Second Samuel, chapter 11, and hold your place there. We're gonna get there to our main passage eventually. And as you turn there, let me give you just a little bit of context to where we are in the biblical narrative today, particularly in the Old Testament story. Now, I know this graphic is a little hard to read, especially some of the smaller fonts, so you you can go on the website later this week and look at the slides, look at this more closely. This is just a snapshot of the Old Testament story, beginning with the patriarchs, that's the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and then the Exodus, this is the time of Moses, leading the people, uh, the Hebrew people out of Egypt into the wilderness. The conquest, this is the time of Joshua. And then then after that, the Judges, the period of the Judges in the Old Testament, very bad, violent time. And then the United Kingdom, or the unified kingdom of Israel, that's where we're going to be today after the period of the Judges. Last week we were in the two kingdoms period where the northern kingdom of israel and the southern kingdom of judah had split the time of most of the prophets of god and so forth and so on so as i said last week we were in the period of divided kingdoms today we're in the united kingdom of israel and this is about 1000 bc 1000 years before christ and first and second Samuel, where we're going to be today, in 2 Samuel particularly, records the period of the United Kingdom. So we're talking about the reign and the rule of Saul, of David, and of Solomon, right? And this is where we are on the map in the time of King Saul. I trust that all of this kind of helps us Uh, figure out where we are in the biblical story and and envision all of this so we're coming out of as i said the time of the judges the philistines are the primary enemy of god at this time and hannah and we read about this in first samuel remember the story of hannah and then you know hannah's barren she can't have a child she prays to god to have a child and she gives birth eventually to samuel samuel becomes a prophet Now Hannah gives a song in the beginning there of 1 Samuel, it's much like the song that Mary the mother of Jesus will give. And her song is really important because it says something about the book in which we're about to dive into. Number one, that God, you see this in her song, that God opposes the proud but exalts the humble. Right, you're gonna see that with Saul, you're gonna see that with David and Solomon. Number two, despite human evil, God is at work in his people. This comes out in Hannah's song. And three, God will raise up a messianic king in Israel. And we're meant to, to see these things at work, as I said in First and Second Samuel. So the people, what do they do? In 1 in Samuel, we're gonna read that they ask for a king so they can be like all the other nations. You, you remember this? Samuel the prophet, who's all grown now, he's, he's, he's in the ministry of prophet, he's troubled by this request. He takes personal offense to it, but God, of course, tells him, uh, you know, you're offended, well, think about how it makes me feel. I'm their true king, but they don't, that's not enough for them. So go ahead and give them what they want. And we're gonna see how that goes in 1 Samuel and First and Second Kings, right? So the people ask for a king, God gives it to him. They choose Saul, the first king, to be king and he's he's good looking, he's strong, he must be a wonderful leader. He has the look of a king, but in fact he turns out to be dishonest, prideful, lacking in integrity and they, they learned there that they should have looked on the inside instead of the outside when looking for a leader. Uh, King Saul disobeys God several times and so Samuel says this in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, he says, but now Saul, because you've disobeyed God multiple times, your kingdom must end for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. This of course doesn't happen immediately. Saul will remain king probably for about a decade uh, but with the knowledge here that his legacy is dead. So his family is not gonna continue to rule in Israel. And so after uh, the prophet Samuel prophesies a change in leadership, Samuel goes to Bethlehem uh, where God directs him to the house of Jesse. Does this story sound familiar to most of you? Okay, good, I'm just refreshing your memory here. And so Jesse has eight sons, eight sons. Samuel's looking for the next king, this man after God's own heart, right? At first he thinks it's the eldest son of Jesse, that's the way we think eldest, young, strappy man who seems ready and fit to go uh, to be a king. Uh, uh, Eliab is his name. He's tall. He's handsome. And like Saul, he had this outward feature of a king, these outward features. And so Samuel thought, surely this is Yahweh's anointed. And he's just about ready to single him out. And look at First Samuel 16 verse 7. Here I have on the screen. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height for I have rejected him this eldest son of Jesse the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them people judge by outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart let's say that together the Lord looks at the heart Right, so right away, this sort of approach sets God's people apart from the nations in the way that the world thinks. And I would say even the way the world thinks today, isn't it? Even when choosing a president here in the US, whether consciously or subconsciously, I've noticed I've done it, I've heard other people do it. Well, they, they, they seem like a good person. They, they say, they've got great policies, but they don't look presidential. They'll they'll never get elected, right? They don't look the part. Nobody's going to vote for them, right? So we're familiar with this way of thinking. It's been with us for a long time. And so God confronts Samuel and says, that's not how I do things. I look at the inside of a person. That's what really matters, Samuel. But Samuel, he looks around and he doesn't see anyone that God is directing him to anoint. Samuel's like, I'm not feeling it. I'm not seeing the next king here. And so he asks Jesse, do you have any more sons? And Jesse says, well, yeah, but he's a boy. And he's out shepherding the sheep right now. And so Samuel tells Jesse, well, call the young man. I want to meet him. And that's what Jesse does. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, we read that Samuel anoints David with olive oil and then we're told that the spirit of Yahweh comes powerfully upon David who was probably about 15 years old at this point. And so Samuel then leaves David until the time is right for him to become king and the next verse says that the spirit of the Lord left Saul and his mind grew dark and he was filled with depression, with fear, Uh, But he still knew nothing about David being anointed as the next king. He just knows his time is limited. He's disobeyed the Lord and now we see, and and hang on to this because we're going to see this language in Psalm 51, that the spirit leaves Saul because of his disobedience. And because of Saul's inner torment, they're told to find someone who can play an instrument to soothe his soul and and to soothe it with music, hoping that this will relax him and calm his, his spirit. And that musician just so happens to be who? David. And so David played for Saul and the Bible says it caused the darkness in Saul to subside. And not long after this, the Philistines prepared to war against the Israelites. They had a warrior in their camp who was very large, very scary guy. His name was Goliath. And Goliath mocked and he jeered at the Israelites. And they were afraid. Nobody wanted to fight this guy. Uh, nobody wanted to go out and face him. So when young David hears about this, uh, he, he express, expresses a few thoughts. One, he says, how can you let this guy talk about our God this way? I mean, aren't you guys as upset about this as me? <laughs> and then number two, he says, so what's the big deal? I've killed a lion with my slingshot. Goliath is nothing, he's not any different. And then number three, David says, God is with us. We have nothing to fear. And so in 1 Samuel 17, we read that David goes out to face Goliath as the armies of Israel and the Philistines look on and he wore no armor, it says, he took no sword, He just took his sling and a handful of stones. And no doubt this would have been viewed by the Israelites as stupid and utterly foolish. They even tell David this. And and to the Philistines, this whole scene was laughable. And it's what they do. They laugh at him. It's like, this is the best you've got? You're sending this little boy out to face us? And we can hear, we can hear uh, David, how David trusts God. We can hear his passion for the Lord in his words to, to, to Goliath. He says, you have come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of God with angel armies. And David rushes at Goliath and brought him down with only a sling and a stone. And we can't help but remember, God is meeting these people where they are. Later on, Jesus will have a lot to say about this kind of violence, but this is where they are. So let's not practice chronological snobbery because in a lot of ways, we're not any better, are we? We're not. And again, this is all that God has to work with. So here we go back to the story. And at the fall of Goliath here, the Philistine armies run for the hills with the Israelites uh, uh, hot in pursuit and they defeat the Philistines that day and and David's victory was celebrated before King Saul and that's when David first meets Saul's son, Jonathan. Remember this? Jonathan, he's real close to Jonathan, close friends with Jonathan who who is uh, loyal to God and they're loyal to each other in friendship and Saul gives him his daughter, gives David his daughter for a wife, makes him a commander of his armies things seem to be going well, but soon after people began to sing songs about the favor that rests on David and how he's greater than King Saul in battle. How do you think Saul feels about that? Remember, Saul knows his time is short. He knows his, his reign is not going to continue. At this point, he's probably looking out for who the next person is. This greatly angers Saul. So the tormenting spirit returns. Saul stews in his anger, pride, Fear, we see paranoia start to bubble up in him and jealousy until one day, you know this story, Saul's efforts, after Saul's efforts to have killed David in battle had failed. I think that's important. Saul tries to put David in battle in a place where he would be killed. That's gonna happen later. Don't forget that. Saul's rage spills over when David is playing for Saul to drive away the evil spirit. And Saul explodes and tries to kill David as he's playing his lyre, which is like a sort of a portable harp in the day. David escapes Saul, he eventually goes on the run into the wilderness to hide from Saul. But Jonathan is loyal to David. He even tries to help David stay alive and avoid the wrath of his father. David is on the run for years. It's hard to imagine this, but he's on the run for years. And yet Saul keeps on pursuing David to kill him. It's an obsession with Saul. And in 1 Samuel chapter 24, we read, while Saul is out looking for David, he goes into a cave to relieve himself. (laughs) And not knowing that David is actually hiding in that cave. And so the men with David want him to kill Saul. Like, this is your chance. Take him out. But David doesn't do it. What does David do? He cuts a piece off of Saul's clothing, right? And to show Saul what he could have done. So Saul leaves the cave. He finishes his business. He leaves the cave. Later, David comes out and says, hey, woo-hoo, I could have taken your life, but I didn't. And I'm not interested in that. But why are you trying to kill me? And so David said that he would not harm the Lord's anointed. Look at this trust from this young man at this point in his life. David spares Saul on two different occasions, but nothing that David did could prove to Saul that he wasn't a threat. And then at the end of 1 Samuel, so the very last chapter, 31, Saul and his son Jonathan, they will die in battle. 2 Samuel begins with David learning of this news, and David grieves. He grieves both for Jonathan, that's understandable, but also for Saul. Grieving for Jonathan, we get it. But how many of us in David's shoes would grieve for Saul? Can you see the difference? Are you seeing the difference in this man? Not perfect, we're gonna see that for sure. But look at this this David, this soon to be king, is a man after his own heart. He grieves for Saul and Jonathan and he writes a funeral song for them. Oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. That comes from David. In fact, David wrote many songs, as you heard Pastor Dave mention earlier in the service. David was a poet. He was a songwriter. He was a musician. He expressed his thoughts and his feelings and his heart for God. In a way, we don't see with other biblical characters. It's noted in the Bible, and you can read this in your English translations at the first, the top of every Psalm, it usually says who wrote it. And of 150 Psalms, David wrote 73. That's quite a bit, isn't it? That's quite a bit of songwriting. And he does it on many different occasions. Many of the songs are written when he was on the run. And so we'll also see at other key moments in his life like Psalm 51, which we'll look at in just a bit. Back to our story, David is 30 years old when he's anointed as king of Judah after Saul dies. And a few chapters later, he incorporates the remaining tribes in the north to form then a united kingdom of Israel. He defeats what is remaining of the Philistine threat He moves the capital to Jerusalem along eventually with the Ark of the Covenant and he shows kindness to to the only remaining heir to Saul's throne, Jonathan's crippled son. Do you remember that story? Uh, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. Only remaining heir to the throne. Now normally what would kings do to the heir of the outgoing king? Kill him, kill them all. No hesitation, David doesn't. And you can say, well, he's simply having sympathy on a crippled guy, well, that wouldn't have stopped most kings, who cares? But David doesn't do it. In fact, David invites Mephibosheth to his table to eat at the royal table. Folks, that's another way of saying to come and live in his house. This is a different kind of king. It's It's a king so far we've seen is trusting God in a way that no others will. And so while David was certainly a man of war, a man of violence, there is no doubt that he showed amazing restraint, amazing restraint, a level of mercy and kindness that was unheard of among kings of any day and of any people. And see, these things that we see the best in David. It's in these things that we see a man after God's own heart. But, but after many years of success and blessing, And enjoying the favor of the Lord. Everything changes for David when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Would you turn there? 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Some years later, in the spring of the year, when kings normally go to war, normally, (laughs) David doesn't. Look at this. David sent Joab the commander of his army, and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites, another threatening tribe. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. And at this point in the story, you're supposed to say, "Uh uh-oh, that's not good. He's, He's not where kings ought to be. No, late one afternoon, verse two, Late one afternoon after his midday rest. Now, you, might, you and I both might sort of we skim right over that, like that doesn't mean anything. Okay, God took a nap. I like taking naps. So what? Often in the scriptures, sleep is associated with spiritual apathy. This isn't just a physical thing that David is doing. It's also an indicator to us that David is not vigilant. David is not only not where he should be, but spiritually he's apathetic. Maybe it's all the blessings. Maybe it's the power and the privilege. Maybe it's enjoying the favor of God for so long. David becomes apathetic. David is not spiritually vigilant. He's up on the roof, walking around. This guy's got a lot of time on his hands, doesn't he? (laughs) Look what it says. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Now, I know right away often the assumption is that this woman is completely in the nude taking a bath and you'd be like, who would do that? Especially an eyeshot of the king. But let's not make that assumption. In fact, a couple of verses later here, we're going to see that this isn't a, just a normal kind of bath. She is cleansing herself after her time of month and she's supposed to do this according to the law. And the place to do it isn't inside, but it's outside. So be careful and slow your roll in blaming Bathsheba. All right? Because the text doesn't seem to allow for this. No. So David's out on the roof. He looks around. He sees this woman in this ceremonial bath. He sent someone to find out who she was. And she was told, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Normally, we wouldn't be given a father's name of an ordinary citizen. This isn't an ordinary citizen. Uriah is a special person in the elite forces of David. Also notice, where where is Uriah, where is he from? What's his nationality here? What's his background? He's not originally one of Israel. The Hittites were formerly enemies of God. You could say he's a native to the land and a land that's now controlled by Israel. And Uriah, we're gonna see here in the story, is more faithful to God than David. Wow. So Uriah the Hittite is the husband of Bathsheba. These are important people. Verse four, David sent messengers to get her and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. The language here in Hebrew is that David is the aggressor. She's just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Now this also means she's ovulating, right? That also means this is the time that she can get pregnant, which is going to happen, isn't it? That's what it says, verse five. Later when Bathsheba discovered she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant, now what? Now there's a lot of the text doesn't tell us, isn't it? Like how did Bathsheba navigate all of this? At first it doesn't seem like she knew why she was coming to the king's palace but when she gets there she quickly finds out and who's going to say no to the king? I mean you've got to put yourself back in that day in the shoes of Bathsheba to understand the power dynamic that is happening here so all of this so far we're, we, we, we're, we're led to believe has happened in secret It is though hard to believe that all of this would have transpired without somebody noticing. She sure has been in there a long time. What's going on? And her coming out and going home. So now David knows she's pregnant. So he sends word to Joab, verse six, send me Uriah the Hittite. Oh, he's already messed up big time and he's gonna mess up some more. Joab sent him to David when Uriah arrived. So he called him out of battle, called him out of battle. Again, this is part of David's elite force. Asked him how Joab and the army were getting along. Hey, how's it going? sit down. Let's talk. How's it going? How's the war progressing? In verse 8, he told Uriah, why don't you just, why don't you go home and and relax? And David even sent a gift to Uriah. You know, it's like a a welcome home, a fruit basket. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe a new sword, a, a, a new spear or something. I don't know. Go, go home, relax, kick back, take off your sandals, you know, go spend some time with your wife. But Uriah didn't go home. And look, look what it says. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard, with other soldiers. Why? Because all his friends are in war. And so he's a good soldier. He's not gonna do this. And David heard that Uriah had not gone. Verse 10, he had not gone home. He summoned him and asked, "Hey, what's the matter? I, I, I sent you home, spent some time off, right? A little R and R, spend some time with your wife. Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long?" And Uriah, Uriah replied, "David, the king, the, the ark, and the armies of Israel and Judah—they're living in tents." And Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. They're risking their lives. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. You know, you, you, surely you see what David's trying to do here. He's trying to cover up his sins. He wants Uriah to go home, be with his wife. No one will ever know. Verse 12, well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next David schemes up something else. Verse 13, he invited him to dinner and he gets Uriah drunk. But even then he couldn't get Uriah to go home to be with his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. Look at this. Uriah carries his own death sentence. Because the letter instructed Joab, station, position Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest. And then pull back so that he will be killed. Remember what I told you to notice about what Saul tried to do to David. David goes even further. Not just puts him on the front line, but tells Joab to have their forces retreat away from Uriah. So Joab assigned Uriah to to the spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. When the enemy's soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. And then skip down to verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace and she became one of his wives. And then she gave birth to a son, But the Lord, Yahweh, was displeased with what David had done. Now chapter 12, verse one. So far, David thinks, nobody knows. I've gotten away with it. Chapter 12, verse one, we're introduced to the prophet that takes over after Samuel. This is the prophet Nathan. And remember, we said last week, that one of the roles of the prophet is to hold the kings accountable. They're covenant watchdogs. They're there to make sure that the kings are are following the will of God and being faithful and obedient to the law. And so chapter 12 verse one, the Lord Yahweh sent Nathan the prophet to tell David a story. Really ingenious crafty way to do this. Look at the story that Nathan tells. There were two men in a certain town, Nathan says to David. One was rich, one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb. It grew up with his children. This was like a pet. This is what Nathan is saying. It ate from the man's own plate, drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, though, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, He took the poor man's lamb, which was like a pet, and killed it and prepared it for his guest. And David was furious. Now remember, the king sits in the place of judge, prophet, priest, king, judge. David is the judge. David is furious. He thinks Nathan's telling him a true story of someone in in his kingdom, which he is, but doesn't quite get where he's going yet. As surely, David said, as surely as Yahweh lives, Any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and and for having no pity. And then the prophet Nathan says to David, you are that man. Yahweh, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and you... And he saved you from the power of Saul. I, I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. Here we are now in Verse 10. From this time on, your family will live by the sword. Look at, look at this, this prophecy over David. There will be violence in his family. This is what Nathan is saying because of what David has done. And, and, and you, you, because you've despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. Verse 11, this is what Yahweh says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes and he will go to bed with them in public view. What you did in secret, I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. And then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And shortly after this confrontation, David writes the psalm that uh, we heard earlier, Psalm 51, if you wanna turn there real quick, you can. Listen to this Psalm in context. After David has been found out, after his, his sins have been exposed, David says, he pins these words in song, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. And I've done what's evil in your sight. And you and I are thinking, well, wait a minute. You sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against Uriah. You sinned against all of Israel. But don't misunderstand what what David is saying here. It 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 is the Lord that has given the law. It is the Lord that has given the commands and, 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 and dished out the expectations for how we're supposed to live. First and foremost, David is recognizing I have sinned against God and you will be proved right in what you say and your judgment against me is just. David seems to be recognizing I get what's coming to me. I was born a sinner from the moment my mother conceived me but you desire honesty from the womb. I, he's saying, do you hear this? I, I knew better. I knew better, I knew what you expected, but I did it. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You've broken me, now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins, hide your face. The Hebrew text says, hide your face from from my sin. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me, God, a, a clean heart. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Don't banish me from your presence. Don't, 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 don't do what you did with Saul. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Rather, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Make me willing to obey you, and I will teach your ways to rebels, they, and they will return to you. People will repent by my repentance. That's what David is saying. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. Listen to what David says. He says, I know you don't want to sacrifice. What insight. I know you don't want me to just butcher some animal on an altar. That's not what you want. Yet you desire a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Folks, look at the inside of David. No excuse for what he's done. It's awful what he's done. But look at the heart that's bubbling up, even in this moment of darkness and sin. Folks, David could have killed Nathan. It seems he's the only one that knows. He, 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 like other kings, could have pulled up some other prophets easily but he accepts what he's done, he confesses to what he's done. Do you see that? Do you hear the text calling to us? Do you hear the question, am I this quick to respond with repentance? Oh, church, what a psalm, what a prayer. And while this prayer certainly doesn't erase or make up for what David has done, it does reveal, as I said once again, why David is considered a man after God's own heart. He could have killed Nathan but he kept, and, he, and, and kept it all a secret, but instead he confesses, he owns up what he's done. And of course, don't worry, <laughs> and this applies to all of us, his repentant posture can't stop all that's going to come as a result of his sins. Remember what happens as a result of David's moral failure. He loses his child with Bathsheba soon after the birth. David's children from many wives and concubines will feud and fight. Amnon, David's oldest son, who would be the one to inherit the throne, forces himself on his half-sister Tamar. Absalom kills Amnon, stages a coup against David. David runs and hides again in his, in, in his later years. He's on the run again until Absalom is killed by David's military commander and then David grieves. We also see how uh, as David ages, he seems to trust and lessen God and more in political and military might. And because he's a man of blood, the scripture says he's not allowed to build the temple. Again, even in the Old Testament, you can see an indictment on violence. David doesn't build a temple, it's Solomon. And Solomon, believe me, will have his own problems. As wise as we say Solomon was, he couldn't have been too, too wise to have all those wives and concubines. I mean, come on. It's, it's, it is, as I, as I prepared this message, I thought through this. It's a sad, tragic story, isn't it? Sad and tragic. Look how well he started. A good bit of his life unlike any other king Israel will ever see or know until the one prophesied to come. And so we mustn't, though, forget, even in the sad and tragic tale, what the prophet Samuel prophesied to David back in 2 Samuel 7. He said this, as the Lord speaking through Samuel, he said, I will establish the throne of David forever. Look at that, forever I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, in the immediate context, this seems to be referring to Solomon, but we know it has a deeper prophetic meaning, don't we? It has to, uh, even Orthodox Jews know this. Therefore, God's people, especially the church, has understood this to be the promise of a coming Messiah who will reign forever with an eternal kingdom and folks, with anyone with a never-ending rule and kingdom must be a never-ending person. Jesus of Nazareth, crucified, died, buried, raised, ascended, and is coming again. He's a better king, <laughs> the perfect king, the true king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the one we wait for and long for in our exile. He's the one who won't disappoint. He's the one who stays faithful and true. He's the one we must intentionally seek. And so we can look back now on a familiar passage with this in mind. The prophet Jeremiah, who we'll be looking at next Sunday, said this in the midst of Israel's exile. So fast forward after David and Solomon and the divided kingdoms and all those wicked kings and all those prophets that come and challenge them and call them to repent, ultimately ends in exile. And the people of God being taken away from their land to live in a foreign land with foreign gods. And Jeremiah says this in that context, for I know the plans that I have for you, God's people, declares the Lord, Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. I love this verse. Verse 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place for which I carried you into exile. And yes, in immediate context, we're we're envisioning this this great return of of the Israelites and of the Jews. But folks, this has future implications. This has eternal implications. This is one day the Lord is going to gather up all his people and Christ, will be king on the earth. But here we are, living in exile today. As we reflect on David's story and think about where we are in our own exile, let's consider some lessons that we learn from David's story. And these are just a few that jumped out at me. You may see others. The first one, when others see a shepherd boy, God may see a king. You remember that song, that Ray Bolt song? When others see a shepherd boy, God may see a king. Let us be reminded, folks, that it's not the outward that God sees, it is the inward. It's what is in our heart. You know, this is what Jesus was trying to tell the Pharisees. You're so concerned about the outside and looking good, you're like a whitewashed tomb with dead men's bones inside. Jesus makes it so clear, (laughs) if there's any doubt, that God looks at the heart. How's your heart? How's it going? Another lesson we see is that we can trust God to fight for us. David did that so well in the beginning. He trusted God in his own context, right, in his day. He was a man of his time, and God worked in it. And he can still do it today if we'll believe that God can fight for us. We don't have to to fight with the weapons of the world, Paul said, but with spiritual weapons that destroy demonic strongholds, that repairs relationships, that brings reconciliation. This is what Christ is calling us to. We also see David was a man after God's own heart, let's be clear, because he passionately pursued God. Not because he was perfect, but because he passionately pursued God even when he failed. Even in the darkness and in its worst, we see this heart bubble up within David. We also see our sins can have disastrous consequences, so we must stay alert. We must be on guard against evil. Don't be where you shouldn't be spiritually apathetic and give the enemy a foothold. What a reminder this is. And I'll also add here, and I don't have this on the screen. We must, as we age, stay vigilant. As we get older, as we sink in, we can easily become comfortable and apathetic. So as we get older, let's be reminded that we have to stay alert. We have to stay on guard. The Lord is not finished with us. Like no other, really, we can see David was both a saint and a sinner. Here are some questions to reflect on that. Do you see yourself anywhere in David's story? If so, how? Maybe you share some similar experiences. I know none of us in here have been a king before, but maybe that spiritual path that David was on, maybe you could pray that prayer in Psalm 51. Lord, Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Return to me the joy of my salvation, because I've just become a cynic saint. Maybe that could be your prayer today. I don't know what it is. There's plenty to pull from in David's story. I trust the Spirit will help you connect the dots. Number two, are you quick are you quick to confess and repent when you've sinned? Would you be that quick or would you try to kill the Lord's prophet? <laughs> When he, when he tells you things you don't want to hear? Oh, that we'd be like David and be quick to repent. Number three, do you express your honest feelings and emotions to God in prayer and in worship with his people? We have to see this as what really, you know, one of the primary things that makes David a man after God's own heart is this relationship and love and passionate pursuit of God that we see in his worship. And lastly, number four, and this gets to the age point I was making, how is God inviting you to stay humble, to stay vulnerable, and to stay vigilant in your faith? How is the Spirit speaking to you today? Would you pray with me? Father, we we are uh, humbled. We are Experiencing this story is sobering. So many points of connection, probably in our own journey. Warnings, reminders, invitations. God, help us to know how your spirit is speaking to us about our own situation and circumstances, about our own faith journey. And give us the strength to respond to you in obedience. And lastly, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see of all of these people, men and women in the Old Testament, and especially with King David, that we would see the signpost that clearly points to you, our true king and our true savior. Lord Jesus, pour out your salvation upon us today as we open up our hearts to you. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen.